So I think we're going to have a picture or two. We'll see if we can get... Okay, let's go with the first slide. So this is a picture of Mount Everest or the hike towards Mount Everest. I don't think this is the peak, but this is pretty close, okay, as you can tell. Mount Everest is the tallest mountain in the world. It's around just over 27,000 feet high, and uh, yeah, everybody wants to be at the top. I have to admit, when I saw this picture a few weeks ago, it isn't what I pictured. I always pictured just one or two people at a time, maybe one or two people a year, and it seems like there's a very high percentage of people that don't make it back um, and things like that. And it is a brutal climb. It's dangerous. I had 900 people on the mountain this year, this season. And season is May. That's the season. It's like you don't want to be up there really on May, but any other time the weather is horrific. But in May, there are times where you can kind of dodge the storms and make it up uh, up to the top if things work out, okay? So they, are, they have all their gear packed, or at least some of their gear packed, because there's a base camp, they can leave some of it. But the idea is if a storm comes, you put your tent up, you, sl- you jump in the tent, and you have your oxygen tank, because it's really, really thin oxygen up there. When you get near the top, it's so, there's so little oxygen that literally you take a step, and then you stop to catch your breath. That's how, that's how thin the air is, okay? So I don't know why these people are doing this. Okay, but I have some suspicions because I'm a guy and I know what it's like to be able to say, I did it. I did something, right? I hiked the whole Foothills Trail, right? Okay, so, so, right? I mean, that's pretty easy to go, I hiked the whole Foothills Trail. But to me, that's a big deal because I've never hiked a whole trail in my life. But it took several, you know, we did, a lot of our men's hikes are along that trail. And if you piece them all together, you can say you did the whole 70 miles over a period of, I don't know, however many years we did it. But it's, there's a sense in which there's a little bit of pride there, okay? And while I, I hesitate to use the word healthy pride, there is such a thing, I think. There's also the pride that the Bible often talks about is the root of sin, okay? And I wouldn't be surprised if... Maybe even a majority of these, who are majority of these are men, are trying to get to the top so they can say they did it. Because who else can, I don't know anybody else that can, I mean, there's people that have done it, but, but to do it, most of them have to pay somebody $50,000 to provide training and equipment and transportation and food and life insurance and if you, you know, to get you there and back if you make it. So you can say, I did it. Okay, so let's just let that be an imperfect example or picture on our minds of pride. And we all have it. And if you don't think you're prideful, then you're prideful. You know, I like to say I'm humble and proud of it. You know, that this idea that we are so, we don't have a good handle on our character like we think we'd like to think we do, that we all struggle with pride, which is why we sin. Okay, now I want you to show the next slide. All right, so you can say, see, I think Gelgi is how you say his name, Gelgi. Sherpa is not his last name. He is a Sherpa. And a Sherpa is part of the package deal when you pay your $50,000 is you get access to a Sherpa. Now, what's a Sherpa? It's a Himalayan man, man who's grown up in the mountains of the Himalayas at high altitudes, so thin oxygen he's used to, um, and he's also used to climbing up and down these mountains. He's used to the cold weather. And he is a combination of a guide and a pack mule because he carries most of the gear and he makes sure you don't step over that ledge 
when you shouldn't because you don't want to go there, right? So this guy is walking up with his either a group of people he's serving or an individual that he's serving, and they're hiking there 500 yards from the top. This is this year. This is in May. They're 500 yards from the top, okay? And he looks over to the right, and there's a man laying in the snow. I mean, he probably doesn't know it's a man. He just sees a person. He rushes over to the person, shares, see his oxygen tank there? Shares some of his oxygen with the person, with the guy. It turns out to be a guy. And he wraps him in his mattress, his sleeping mattress. And that's him strapped to his back. I don't even know if he finished. I, I think he just turned around and went back down the mountain six hours with this man on his back. Okay? And it, it looks kind of flat right there. And there are places where it's kind of flat. There are also places where you're climbing and you need crampons on your shoes, which means spikes so that you don't slip. There are places where there's a crevice you can't see the bottom to, and the way you get across the crevice is you literally, it's, it's just a ladder, and you crawl across the ladder with all your gear and this guy on your back, and this Sherpa took him to the bottom. Okay? Now, to me, those are two pictures of what we're looking at today when we look at, at Matthew 23. Jesus is confronting religious leaders. I just think it's a coincidence, guys, that he's talking to men, okay? But he's talking to men in high position with power, with uh, respect, with uh, authority, with money, with influence, and he is saying some of the harshest things you will ever hear Jesus say, okay? You won't find any of these things on many bumper stickers, okay? All right, these are not the Jesus coffee cups that you will be seeing in the, in the Christian bookstores, okay? This guy did what we talked about last week, right? We said the antidote to pride is to serve, is to humble yourself and serve others, okay? He didn't even know this guy, and he risks his life. This is the Good Samaritan on display, isn't it? This is what we read in Luke 10 when we read the Good Samaritan story. He, with at great personal cost, money, time, risk of life, he rescues somebody. And this is a question we need to be asking ourselves. Who's my neighbor? The, question, the, the answer that Jesus gives us in Luke 10 is, whoever's in your path in need. And last week we said, right, who's in need in our path? Everybody. There's not one person that doesn't have a need. Now, some are in crisis, and it's more obvious, and more dramatic, more physical, but all of us have needs, okay? So today we're answering this question. What lessons can we learn from Jesus' warnings about spiritual hypocrisy and blindness, spiritual blindness, okay? What can we learn? What lessons can we learn from Jesus' warnings about spiritual hypocrisy and blindness? And like me, you're probably going, um, didn't we already do like two or three sermons on hypocrisy? And I'm going, yes, because that's the way it comes. As we work our way through Matthew a few verses at a time, we do it in order the best we can the way we see it coming. Let's just keep this in mind. This is God-breathed Word of God. We believe that God wrote perfectly through the human, imperfect human writers that wrote this down. And so we believe that the books and letters and things that we read in here are ordered and organized in such a way that God intended. So if God spends three weeks on hypocrisy, hello, maybe there's a reason. Maybe it's because I need to hear it and preach it again. Maybe someone else. We'll go with me and just stop there, okay? But I might not be the only one. So we're going to start in verse 13. 
And we're going to work through these painful verses because if you have a heartbeat and you care what God thinks, this is going to be hard because you're going to maybe see a little bit of yourself in here. I know I have, and, and it's going to be difficult. But the mercy of God is at work here. When God shows me my faults, it means he's opened my eyes to see them. And now all I need is the courage to repent and believe that there's a better story for me. There's a better way. And this is what I'm hoping you and I will find as we go through this together. So with that, let me say a quick prayer, and then we'll continue. Lord Jesus, I I thank you that you were willing to say these words publicly to those who were actually trying to kill you already. In your last days on earth, you put it all on the line to say the truth that sets us free. You really are the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by you. And so, Lord, I thank you for your model, your your example, your, your life given for me so that I might live for you. Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear what you want to say today. Lord, this is not the message I would have picked for today, but it's the message you picked for today. And so, Lord, I pray, I believe it will not return void, that your word will touch hearts and minds, maybe in, in a way that it would not have happened otherwise. And so, Lord, help us to have the faith to believe that you're alive and working in us and that we would have the humility to believe and receive and become children of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So if you remember in Matthew 5, we had the first 12 verses of Matthew 5 began the kind of the Jesus manifesto of the, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins, blessed are the, and I could read those, but there's, a, there's like seven or eight, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the poor, etc. Those are all divine blessings. These are the opposite. These are divine woes. And this isn't woe, Nelly, okay? This is woe, have mercy, because the judgment, the righteous, divine condemnation and wrath of God is being pronounced on these men in front of these people. This is incredible intensity, okay? So let's remember the first 12 verses we talked about yesterday, or yesterday, last Sunday. Jesus was talking to the crowds and the disciples and the, the, the Pharisees and the religious teachers of the law were right there watching. And he's talking to the crowds and to his 12 disciples and he's saying, he's warning them about those guys, okay? Among other things, he's like, they don't practice what they preach, okay? There's a whole list of things he gave. You go read the first 12 verses. Well, at verse 13, he pivots and he starts talking directly to those men in front of the crowds and the disciples. And he continues, but it's not, it's not exactly warnings. It's warnings for these folks, but it's really not warnings for these guys because he says, I don't know how you're going to escape hell based on the way you've lived. Now, maybe they had a way out and it's really not up for me to decide, but this is, I'm telling you, and these are guys that are already plotting his death. Okay, so verse 13 starts off with the first of seven woes, seven divine judgments, pronouncements, and there's reasons behind each of those which we'll touch on as we go through these. Starting verse 13, I'll read through 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, that's the religious leaders that are present, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter 
nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Okay, Jesus has arrived. It's not what we expected. Let's, let's see. What's he, why is it, there's two of the woes. Let's, why is he saying this? What's he mean? You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves are not willing to enter. What's he saying? He's saying the way to God, the way of salvation to God, the creator, all right, we, we, we see that it's through Jesus, and, he, and he's saying to them, you are preventing people from seeing that, you are preventing people from being encouraged to go down that road, and you're not willing to go down that road. Okay, now here's a couple of ways that could happen, and maybe even the ways we could actually be guilty of the same thing, and I know that might be hard to swallow, but just work with me for a second. Okay, let's do this. We did this last week. Let's imagine there's a line right here, and this line is, is, the, is the truth of Scripture, Okay, and and he, remember last week he said that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were actually teaching the word of God. They were teaching the law of Moses. They were doing so accurately, well, pretty much. They were when they did, they were to obey what he said, what they taught. Jesus said, "Obey." It's in verse. Uh, let's see here. Um, be careful to do everything they tell you to do. Verse three. Be careful to do everything they tell you to do. That's the word of God. So. But then he said that they are misleading the people by doing two things, adding to the word of God and taking away from the word of God. They were adding to the word of God by adding man-made rules and traditions and regulations on top of the word, which were not true or not life-giving like the law is. And the law is life-giving because it leads to life, not because it is in and of itself. Less... What they were doing was the opposite of what God wanted them to do. And they were literally going to other countries and winning people to the way of Judaism, but not Judaism in its pure form, like I would call the Old Testament scriptures teach, but a a man-made, man-corrupted, legalistic version of that. And it wasn't life-giving, it was burdensome. And so that's why he concludes by saying, you've succeeded when you reach a convert, you succeeded and made them twice as much a child of hell as you are. It is not beyond reason to believe that we could truly believe we're doing God's will and actually be doing the same thing. How might we be doing that? Not pointing them to Jesus would be one way. Adding to scripture rules and regulations that are not our law to follow. I'll give you an example of that. So um, the, it's still true today. You can, if you go, if you were to go to an old old church, I'm going to pick on Baptist because I'm a recovering Baptist. Uh, you could go to an old Baptist church, read an old constitution or bylaws, and on some of them you will still find it saying you cannot be a member if you drink. Now it does not say in the Bible that you can't drink alcohol. There is nowhere in the Bible it says that it's wrong to just drink alcohol. Okay, now. You know, forget the parable of the turning water to wine. I mean, right? I mean, it's not, it's not in Scripture. What is in Scripture is thou shalt not be drunk on wine. Well, don't be drunk on wine. Leads to debauchery. Instead, be drunk on the Holy Spirit because that's who you want controlling your life, not the alcohol, right? We go by some of these taverns and they have spirits. They use the word spirits to describe alcohol. It's because when you drink too much, you start seeing spirits, but they're not the good ones, right? 
You start letting something else have control of your life. And that's what he's saying is let the Spirit of God have control of your life. Well, what they've done is they've taken the law of God and they've added man's extra rules there with good intentions, probably, but poor execution. Another way that, so we can mislead people to say, well, if you'll follow that rule, don't dance and chew and go with girls who do. You know, if you, don't, if you believe those and follow those rules, then you're going to be good with God, right? It's not, it's not, okay? And then another way is to take away from the law of God, and that's not practicing what you preach, okay? That would be, and there's another way, not saying anything, the sin of silence. We have something we have a message. Remember Johnny Appleseed and his seed of the gospel, his seed of the message? We have a message that's more precious than the cure for cancer. We have a message that's more precious than the cure for AIDS. Imagine if we did have the cure for cancer and we didn't share it with anybody. Would that not be criminal? Would that not be horrible for someone to find out that somebody has the cure for cancer and they're not sharing it with anybody? Okay, now amplify that times infinity and eternity, and you have the gospel in our hands, and we're sitting on it when we don't open our mouths, when we don't open our lives to people that need to hear it. Okay, it's not just for eternal life, it's for all of life, but it is for eternal life. And most of the people around us are on this broad road that leads to destruction. So that's how we keep people just by being cowards. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm at the front of that line. You say, well, you preach. You, you preach the gospel. Yeah, but put me out there with real people. And I don't mean you're not real, but I mean like in a setting outside of church where I feel safe and loved and affirmed. And I'm just like you. I struggle. It's not easy. And I can't use the excuse, well, I don't know enough. <laughs> you guys can maybe use that, but I can't. But we all have our reasons, right? If we're honest. That's just two of the woes, okay? That's woe three. And at the end, y'all are just going to go, whoa, we've had enough. Woe to you, blind guides. Not blind guys, but it works. Same guys, guides, all right? Woe to you, blind guides. This is important because to me, this is reminding us that we are blinded. We have blind spots. When we're lost, we, don't, we can't see the truth unless there's an exception made. God's mercy works. But as a believer, my eyes have been opened. The Holy Spirit is in me, and he is making it so that I can see the truth. But that doesn't mean I don't have blind spots. And I need God's grace to see those. I need him to reveal those. That's one of my prayers for us today, is that before we leave, that there will be some blind spots that either we see for the first time or that we open our hearts to dealing with. We actually get honest with God and go, you're right. That's mercy. And that's what he's, he's calling them blind guides. Can you imagine one of your Sherpas being blind? Going up Mount Everest? He says, don't step there. Well, you're blind. What do you mean don't step there? He's like, well, it's really not safe anywhere. I guess that would work, but not for very long. Verse uh, 16, what do you blind guides? You say, if anyone swears by the temple. Okay, this is a, I'm just going to read a minute, okay? If anyone swears by the temple... It means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, 
If anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men. So now we got blind guys, blind fools, blind men. You see the pattern? Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it, And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it, that would be God, and anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it, which would be God. Okay, now what in the world? Let me just try to give it to you real simple. I think this captures it. When I was a kid, I was a terrible, prolific liar. Okay? I lied and I got caught a lot. Okay? Once in a while, I would be accused of doing something I actually didn't do. And so I'd say to my mom, I didn't do that. And of course, she's already skeptical because pattern, right? And brother's over there going, yes, he did. And so I promise, I promise, right? I'm pulling out the I promise. Okay, what am I doing? I'm swearing an oath, in essence. I'm saying, this is different. I'm really doubling down. I really told the truth. I promise. Now, why do I do that? Because my track record isn't good enough on its own. So I have to level up somehow. I'm desperate. I'm going to get punished for something I actually didn't do. So you can relate to that, right? You've seen that. That's kind of what it's talking about here. But even more than that, it's saying this. So when I was in my same age period of time, we'll call it middle school because that was some terrible years. So I'm, I'm at school and I tell somebody a story because, you know, we, we make up stories in middle school just because we want to be liked. And if somebody laughs at a joke or says, oh, that's really cool, then all of a sudden you've, your cool meter pegs just a little bit. And so I say something, I tell somebody a story or say something and they go, uh-uh, and Slip that hand behind my back and say, I promise. But I don't show them this. What am I doing? It's like I'm saying, God, you know I'm just kidding, wink, wink. I promise I'm telling you the truth. As if this is the loophole that I need to get out of that. But that's what I was thinking, right? And that's what we do when we do. And this is what they're doing. These religious leaders are making oaths, swearing oaths in such a way that with just a little subtle change, they could make it really matter or not really matter. I got to keep this oath because God hears that oath, but he doesn't hear this oath. You see, they were doing that. But they were doing it with religious and spiritual authority to the people and with the people, and with each other. And so you think about that that undermines trust and and the leadership there and the authority that they have. So Jesus, is he's hammering them. Number four, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, who you hypocrites. You give a man a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. So what's happening here? So these uh, religious leaders, again, they genuinely believe that what they're doing is right. They genuinely believe that they're following the law, which includes giving in accordance with the law, which would mean um, whenever I get something, a tenth of it goes back to the Lord right off the top, okay? So if God, someone gives me 10 ears of corn, one ear goes to the Lord, all right? If somebody gives me 10 
sheep, I give one to the Lord, and, and so on and so forth, all the way through everything, okay? And don't worry about the logistics as far as how they handled it. They could exchange and use money, and the temple ended up with gold. That was the bottom line. The temple had to get its gold, right? So they're, they're doing this. So they were so precise and so careful to keep this law that if they were, if they had their little, some of y'all, you know what I'm talking about, some of y'all have these little, little um, dish gardens with herbs and spices growing in them. You know you do. Some of you do. And you have the little fluorescent light over underneath the counter and it's shining. Or some of you have it growing outside in your garden, which is good, right? And, and you go and you snip off a little mint or slip off, snip off a little, um, um, what was that stuff we just, cilantro and, and stuff like that. So you slip, you know, and they would get their tenth of that and save it to tithe. I know y'all all do that too, but you know what I'm saying, right? It's really odd for them to, they, they did that. They're real careful with that. And Jesus was like, I have no problem with you obeying that law, but you are, you are making a huge mistake when that's what you're majoring on. He's like, how about justice? How about justice? Okay. Biblical justice, like Let's just do what's right and righteous. Let's look out for those who are suffering injustice around us. Right? We don't like this because, you know, we don't like this because we think in terms of political phrases like social justice, okay? Just slide that aside. This is not that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about biblical justice. Do what is right. Treat everyone the same in the sense that we're all made in the image of God. It doesn't matter what color our skin. It doesn't matter what our socioeconomic background is. It doesn't matter what our religion is. It doesn't matter what our gender preferences are, even though I may disagree. We treat and love people because it is right and good. That's the love mercy part, the merciful part, but justice too. Okay. Now, how we do this? This is the this is why we have the, the tension we have in our world today. But the, the truth is, at the end of the day, we are to exercise biblical justice. We are to act justly in our everyday lives. That means that when you do a business deal, you tell the truth. You don't cheat your customers or your clients. I don't care how justified you think you are. You don't cheat your employer, stealing from the supply cabinet or writing down more hours than you actually worked. That's, that's not right. Justice is doing the right thing. It's just being the person that does the right thing, making right decisions and acting on those, okay? And I know I'm talking to a room of many, many Christians, okay? Well, you know, statistics aren't really in our favor right now, so I won't quote any. But we're not good at this either. And he says, justice, the greater matters of the law, justice, mercy. What is mercy? That's what we love to get, right? Don't treat me like I deserve. Please don't treat me like I deserve. But I'm going to treat you like you deserve because I'm giving you justice. Oh, oh, but God gives us mercy too. Be merciful. Okay, so, well, I thought you wanted me to be just. You'll know that, you know when to do what, which. You just got to want it. And then the last one is be faithful. And I think of, I mean, to me, this is Jesus summarizing Micah 6, 8. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's what God requires of us. That's what he calls us to. That's the gospel in a nutshell. If you want to live it out, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Imagine a church full of people that did that, like consistently, with a heart motivated to do that 
because they want to please their creator and redeemer. Wow. I have a feeling we wouldn't look like just everybody else. I w- if, if, if I would do that, my neighbors might even notice, right? And yours would too. And I guarantee you people driving on I-26 would notice. Okay. Um, but then he says this, you've practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. So the smallest unclean animal in the, in, in the days and in, in Palestinian area of Jesus was a gnat. So if you ate a gnat by accident, you are now unclean, which means you can't do all the religious celebration that comes, whether it's a, a worship time of worship or whether it's a festival, which is probably the big deal because there's lots of food and wine involved, I'm sure. And so you have this Passover festival. They had three major festivals a year in Jerusalem, and they were, you know, everybody was encouraged, strongly encouraged to come in. We're supposed to come to all three if they lived within a reasonable distance. But you couldn't participate if you were unclean. Okay? Oh, and then people would look down at you like, oh, you're unclean. You know, as if they're beneath you, as if they weren't unclean yesterday. But they just got through their cleansing, so now they're back and they can look down on you now. So the gnat was the smallest animal that was unclean. The camel was the biggest. So Jesus does something interesting here. He uses a real example and then he uses a metaphor. Because it was very possible that you could drink a gnat by accident, land in your drink. You know, they didn't have screens on the windows. No AC. So you got animals and bugs all in your house and all over the place, everywhere. Okay. And, and so if you went to take a drink of wine and you saw a gnat floating in your drink, right? You don't want to drink it because you don't want to, the gnat's unclean, right? Plus it's a little bit gross. And so they would literally pour the wine through a cloth that would, that would strain out gnats or water. They do it with drinking water too. Not that they drank much water, but you know what I mean. They would go to the trouble to do that so they wouldn't be unclean, but they would swallow a camel. Well, you don't swallow a camel literally, but figuratively, what does that mean? Right? They're willing to do injustices and not show mercy and not be faithful, the things that really matter to God. They were willing to be unclean in those categories. And he's saying, woe to you for that. Divine judgment. Woe to you. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. I'm in verse 27 now. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Still going with that. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So up top, in verse 25, they were full of greed and self-indulgence for being the hypocrites they were. Oh, I skipped that. That's the clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. That was verse 26. So 25 through 28 are all basically saying um, this. Okay, so it would be ridiculous, right, if I did this. I fix a bowl of oatmeal. That's not the ridiculous part. I fix a bowl of oatmeal. I, I eat for breakfast, and then I just put it in the sink. Okay, I ate it all, but the bowl's dirty. I set it in the sink. It's the last bowl. Somebody comes over, and for whatever reason, I'm serving oatmeal to my guest. And so I'm like, I have one bowl left. Um, And so I grab the bowl, and I make sure the outside looks good, and I spoon in some more oatmeal, and I hand it to him. Right? Gross, right? When we don't, when we neglect the inside spiritual life, we're doing something way grosser than that. 
even if the outside looks clean. Okay? And you don't have to wear a suit or a dress to do that, to play that part, right? Whatever looks great and together in your context is the equivalent of, I'm going to come in and make, it sure, make sure that everybody looks at me and says, oh, they got their act together. They're good because we don't have our act together, do we? We all have our struggles, if we're honest. And we don't like to tell people about them because that's, that loads us up with shame and guilt and we're afraid what people will do, that they'll push away. And so we come in and we hypocritically act like there's nothing wrong. In the one place we should be able to say, yes, yeah, stuff's wrong and I need your prayers. Okay? Now, to your credit and to many credit in here, that's not true for all of you. And I know that sometimes we do that without meaning to. So I think he's telling them, you guys are doing this premeditatively, wickedly. I think sometimes we just get caught up in, I'm just hurting and I'm afraid and I don't trust anybody here yet enough to tell them anything. I get that. Okay? There is a difference between a premeditated, I'm being a hypocrite because I'm putting on a show because I'm proud and I'm struggling. There's just a difference. And so I want to acknowledge that in all hypocrisy. It's still hypocrisy. It's still something Jesus wants to cleanse us and heal us from. If we'll work with him, if we'll let him in. The whitewashed tombs piece. So when they would have these festivals, tens of thousands more people would come into the city. And so there are literally so many people in the city, they're camping in tents out around the city. There's just people everywhere. And these people aren't familiar with Jerusalem enough to where they might at night or in dusk or whatever accidentally brush up against a tomb. And you just, people were just buried everywhere. They just buried people, whatever was convenient. Because remember, this is thousands of years of history in this place. And so you could be, you could be going, you could just lean up against a rock and realize, whoa, there's a tomb. I just touched the tomb. I didn't see it there. And so what they would do is they would instruct everybody, wash and paint the tomb doors or the headstone or whatever it happened to be so that it would be more obvious to those who are guests or from coming in from outside, so they won't accidentally be as inclined to touch and become unclean. But what's inside a tomb? Bones, decaying, rotting flesh, right? Gross death. And Jesus is saying, this is what you're neglecting, leaders of the religious Judaism, and this is what you're neglecting. You look great on the outside with your flowing robes and all your phylacteries and headpieces and, you know, all that. You're looking great on the outside, but you're dead. When we were at seminary, we went to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, the town, North Carolina. And I can't remember which one hurricane it was, um, but this would have been in the 80s, right? No, 90s. This would have been mid-90s, close to 95. And several hurricanes came through back to back, and the campus was saturated. The ground was saturated, and trees were blown over left and right. But there was one massive live oak that wasn't so alive that was knocked over and broke. And when you saw the inside, you realized that the middle of this tree was dead, rotted out. But on the outside, it looked like this massive, powerful, towering tree, kind of a, one of the focal trees on campus. It's just one of those massive, beautiful trees, and yet it was rotting in the core. But you would have not known it until it fell, okay? 
This is what we have to be careful of. If my core is rotting, it's just a matter of time. The storms of life will take me out. And the only one who can restore the core, right, is Lord Jesus. And we have to humble ourselves and let him in. Okay, so he continues and he says, Woe to you, teachers of law. This is the seventh and final woe. You Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. Sounds good, right? Nothing wrong with um, building tombs and, and probably monuments for prophets of the past and decorating them and, and updating them. But then what do they do? Verse 30, and you say, I want you to picture them dedicating it, okay? And they're making a speech, right? That's what people do when they want, you know. If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. What are they doing even as they say this? They are plotting the death of the prophet of prophets, Jesus himself. And Jesus knows this. He knows their hearts. So he continues, So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. I mean, it's almost like he's like, go ahead, nail me to the cross. I mean, he is so ready to be done with this. You snakes, verse 33, you brood of vipers. How would you like to be called uh, a a baby snake, a uh, a baby cobra? And, and, and know that the person is saying, you know, Satan, serpent, you know what I mean, you baby cobra, you. And that's what he's saying. All of you, you're just a big brood of baby Satans, child of hell. I mean, he is, he is not holding back. How will you escape being condemned to hell? That's what he says to him. Now, I don't think he's saying that there's no hope, but it sure sounds like it. Therefore... I'm sending you, this is the future he's talking about, I'm sending you prophets and sages, that's a wise man, and teachers, sages can be wise men or women, some of them you will kill and crucify. Think Stephen. Stephen wasn't crucified, Stephen was stoned to death. Peter, crucified. Others you will flog in your synagogues, John and Peter, and pursue from town to town. Paul did that. He was Saul, went by Saul, and he was pursuing Christians and arresting them and persecuting them and at times killing. And so upon you, and so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come to this generation. Happy Father's Day. (laughs) Right? He is saying, The judgment that has been stored up against all of those prophets that your ancestors murdered because they had the same heart you have right now against me, 1,500 years of that is going to fall on you and this city. I don't know about you, but then he says this. So we see that's kind of the anger of Jesus. He's not like out of control. This is a righteous anger, a righteous indignation. But then we, we see him turn at verse 37 to a, a righteous anguish. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
He's talking to the people of Jerusalem, and we're going to see who are rejecting him, including those men. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. And you were not willing. And you were not willing. Jesus is willing to gather. God is sovereignly drawing people to himself, working in the lives of people to rescue them. But he will not force you. Human responsibility is a much a part of this is sovereignty of God. Somehow they fit together. I don't know. But here we see he is basically saying, you were not willing to trust me. You were not willing to receive me. In your pride, you were not willing to accept me for who I am. The prophet of prophets, the Messiah, foretold in Scripture, and I fulfilled all of those prophecies. And then he ends with, look, your house is left to you desolate. The house is referring to the temple. And 40 years later, this is around A.D. 30, A.D. 70, the temple will be destroyed by Rome, the city will be destroyed by Rome. And the temple has not been a temple since. You know, got the Wailing Wall, we got a little bit of it left. Thousands of years, literally, it's been sitting there, desolate. And then he says this, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because he knows he's really close to the cross. I don't know what day of the week this is that last week, but he's really close to Friday. And he'll be arrested the night before. And he'll be crucified on Friday. He'll be buried and left in the grave Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning early. He'll rise from the dead. And 40 days he'll appear to his followers, and then he'll ascend to be with the Father and leave the rest of us to cast the seeds of the gospel message. If we humble ourselves, put on our best Sherpa act, and carry people far from God to Jesus. That's what he's calling us to. So the question we were asking right at the beginning was, what lessons do we take, learn from the warnings of Jesus? about spiritual hypocrisy and blindness. We have our blind spots if we're not completely blind, but there's a remedy to that. And the hypocrisy is a fruit of that. How do I go unblind? Look, there's a road that leads to destruction, and most people are here. Most people you and I know are here. And they're heading towards, they're, hell, they're all hellbound, apart from a life-changing experience from their creator, Jesus Christ. There's a narrow way that leads to life. And the Bible says, Jesus says, few find it, but some do. And we don't know who that's going to be. So we love those on the broad road. And we ask God, show us who, is, who are your people in this crowd that we can lead to you so that we can help them find the, the way home. How do we do that? And maybe you're, you're saying, well, I think I'm on the broad road. Well, you, it doesn't matter. You just, you just come to the place where you go, Lord, I need, I need you to open my eyes. And, and maybe you're going, I don't really want him to open my eyes anymore. I've seen enough today. <laughs> okay, that's, 
that's probably a good thing if you're seeing it because we all still have blind spots. We're going to walk out of here with some blind spots. Let's walk out of here with less blind spots. And if you're blind and you're realizing it, then just go, God, I need your mercy. Remove the scales from my eyes. Please, I want to see. I believe that Jesus is the way to true life. And I need you to open my eyes to see that and walk the way of Jesus. That's what he's calling us to. Okay? So when we talk about these arrows, and we talk about launching our kids into life as adults, we're sending, it means we're sending them prepared to know how to deal with this. And the church exists to encourage parents as they do that. But the front lines is in your home. Dads, the front lines are in your home. And you're not going to look back at the end of life and go, gosh, I wish I had put a few more hours in at the office. No, you're going to wish you'd spent a few more hours with your kids pointing them to Jesus. And I don't want you to have regrets. We all probably already do. Let's, let's stop that. Let's move forward. We can't change the past, but we can change how we handle the future. We can change not just my, an action today, but that's a good start. We could change an attitude, and we could certainly change our pattern of behavior, but that's going to take a move of God, a willingness to face the blind spots that are in our lives. So I'm going to pray in just a second, and I'm going to pray a prayer that anyone in here can pray. I mean, you can however you want. It's, it's the heart of faith that God senses. That's what he's responding to. He's not responding to your actual, necessarily, the words and how you say them. But if you don't know the Lord, the remedy is repent and believe. It's repent of this way. And there's been a lot of that description here. It's repenting of walking on my own, living life my own way, instead of walking in the way of Jesus. But if you're a follower of Christ, but yet you feel conviction, you should embrace that conviction and say, thank you for convicting me of my sin. Now forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me of my sin. It's the same thing. It's repent, which means I'm going to turn away from this way, and I'm going to turn this way. That's it. It's a changing in your thinking. It's a changing in your attitudes, your beliefs, your hearts, your emotions. It's just a wholesale, I'm done with this. I'm embracing this. And I can't do this alone because I will fail right? We need each other, don't we? We need each other. We need the encouragement. We need the prayer support. We need someone to get in our face and say, I love you, brother, but you are missing this blind spot. We need that. And this is why we, we gather. So let's pray. Lord, as we, as we move through towards the end of this time of worship, Lord, I pray that you will continue to work in our hearts and minds and that you'll help us not let go of this moment, but to deal with whatever it is you've brought front and center right now. Lord, give us the courage to face our sins. Lord, thank you for giving us a way to face them with hope, that you've given us a way to be forgiven, that you said if we confess our sins to you, You are faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. Lord, that is good news. That's a promise that we can embrace. Lord, help us to have the courage to do that, to humble ourselves and to throw our hands in the air and say, I surrender, Lord, to you. I'm giving up my old ways, my attitudes, my patterns, and I am turning to you. Lord, help us to have what we need to do that, the faith, the courage, the audacity for hope, a real hope, a hope that matters, a hope that lasts, a hope that's eternal. 
that leads to life abundant and eternal. So give us that so that we might turn to you even now. Even now, as we, as we hear this prayer, Lord, may we just amen in our hearts. This is what I want, Lord. This is what I need, Lord. Please come and change me, humbling ourselves before you, not because we want to get, be the first to the top of the mountain, but because we want, we're willing to forsake the mountain so that we can save this person that's in need right next to us, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus, who died on the cross in our place so that we could live on earth in his. Amen.